Mormon Discussions and its lineup of great podcasts is about helping Latter-day Saints like you tackle deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping these podcasts alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the programs on this podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber. Or making a donation at mormondiscussions.org. Again, that's Mormon Discussions, plural with an S on the end, dot org. Donate today and support programs like Mormon Discussion, Radio Free Mormon, Mormon Awakenings, The Mormon Wellness Project, Mormon History Podcast, Marriage on a Tightrope, and others. If these programs benefit you, and you want to see these continue, please consider making an annual donation starting today. All donations are tax-exempt inside the United States and go towards keeping the podcast alive. One, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight, I am recording a special episode called Church Sex Scandal Cover Up. I am recording this episode on Tuesday, March 28th, 2018. For those of you who may have been living under a rock this past week, there was a massive firestorm of media coverage. Beginning Monday, March 19th, 2018, regarding allegations of sexual abuse at the MTC, the Missionary Training Center of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, located in Provo, Utah. And not just any kind of sex abuse, but sex abuse allegations leveled at the president of the Missionary Training Center. The Missionary Training Center, at the time when this allegation was made back in 1984, or more specifically, when this allegation was made that is alleged to have happened, in 1984, was the one place through which all missionaries going to serve in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints went in order to receive training. If an English-speaking missionary was going to an English-speaking mission, they would be at the MTC for four weeks. If they were learning a foreign language in addition to that, they would be there for eight weeks. I was in the Missionary Training Center from November of 1979 to January of 1980. I was there for two months because I had to learn the Japanese language, in addition to being trained to be a missionary. And it appears that this sister, who is still at the time of this recording anonymous, was also at the MTC for eight weeks because she was learning the Spanish language prior to going to her mission. Because this sister missionary, who is now a grown woman in her 50s, is still anonymous, I will refer to her as Sister X for purposes of convenience. Sister X had approached the former MTC president, whom we know is Joseph Bishop, sometime in late November or early December of 2017 and recorded her conversation with Joseph Bishop. As I say, this scandal broke Monday, March 19, 2018, when Mormon Leaks released on its website a recording purporting to be Sister X confronting this former MTC president, Joseph Bishop. Sister X posed as a reporter initially in order to gain access to him and ended up talking to him for about two hours and 44 minutes, all of which was recorded by Sister X. Around the 45-minute mark of the recording, Sister X reveals who she is to Joseph Bishop, that she is the sister missionary 
he sexually assaulted back in 1984 when she was at the MTC and he was the MTC president. As you can imagine, this ignited a firestorm of controversy and media frenzy on the issue, which I was able to follow in real time as it unfolded. And what ended up happening is that by the time Thursday night rolled around, that is Thursday, March 22nd, 2018, the situation had developed to the degree that two huge pieces of evidence came into place for me. Number one, that this allegation of sex abuse that Sister X was making did in fact happen. And number two was that the LDS church was doing its best to cover it up. Now those are both strong conclusions to make. So I want to lead you through the evidence that brought me to that point. But I will tell you right now that Thursday night when I realized both of those things were absolutely true beyond a reasonable doubt, I was furious at the LDS Church for knowing about this sex abuse, knowing that it had happened, and doing its best to cover it up from the members and from the world. Before I begin my review of what happened last week, I want to give you a little bit of background about myself so you can know that I'm approaching this from the point of view of a lawyer. And not just any lawyer, but a criminal defense attorney. I have been doing criminal law in the county where I live for the last 28 years, the first eight years, I was with the local county prosecutor's office. When I left there in 1998, I was the senior felony criminal deputy prosecutor. And since that time, for the past 20 years, I have been representing people who are charged with crimes, which is basically all that I do. So when this recording was released on Monday, March 19th by Mormon Leaks, I was skeptical. I am by nature and by training and by experience skeptical of any allegations made by anybody. Allegations are easy to make, but much more difficult to prove. And the more outrageous the claim that is made, the more evidence I need to see to be convinced that the allegation is in fact true. Because of my background, I reviewed the transcript of the audio release on Monday, March 19th. And what I found was that there were a lot of holes in this audio tape, by which I mean not that there were gaps in the recording, but there were certain things in the recording that didn't add up to me. The first thing I didn't know about this audio tape was whether the person being talked to was actually Joseph Bishop, the former MTC president. The second thing I did not know is whether it had been edited in any way. The third thing I noticed, even as I listened to it, assuming those first two things were true that it was Joseph Bishop and that it had not been edited was that Joseph Bishop was really not admitting to the allegation being made by Sister X. And her allegation was that Joseph Bishop had taken her down into a room in the basement of the MTC. She described the room as having a bed in it, also a VCR and a TV and videotapes. And her allegation was that they both sat on the bed, he tried to kiss her, she pushed him away, and then he proceeded to tear her clothes off and rape her. And even though this was being bandied about the internet as a confession by Joseph Bishop that he had done this thing, he actually never admitted to it. He said he did not remember. Now, it's true that a person in a situation like that would probably say, no, I never did that, if they were in fact innocent. That saying, I don't remember, may just be a cover-up of the fact that he did it. But the fact was that he never actually admitted to doing what it was that she alleged he had done. He did, however, make some other strange and seemingly inculpatory statements throughout other portions of the interview. So as I say, I was skeptical at first. And having reviewed the transcript, 
I was willing to wait and see what developed after that. What developed after that was soon in coming. The first thing that began happening was that on that same day, Monday, March 19th, the church began to erase Joseph Bishop from its websites. Joseph Bishop had written a number of books, as it turns out, that were available through Deseret Books on the Deseret Books website. Very quickly, those books were taken down from the website. And by Monday evening, his books were also taken down from the BYU Bookstore website. There was no comment left in its place saying that the church had decided to take down Joseph Bishop's books because of an investigation that was ongoing. No, they were simply erased from the website. They went down the memory hole. This is the typical standard operating procedure that we have seen in the LDS church, that when they want something to disappear, they simply erase it from the memory banks without any explanation to the members as to why it's being taken down, with the hope in mind that nobody really is going to notice. But when people go to look for these things in the future, they simply won't find them. Now, I do find this kind of behavior on the part of the church sneaky and reprehensible, and yet it is the kind of behavior that I have seen on numerous occasions by the church in the past. So simply them following what they have done in the past, in this case with Joseph Bishop, does not in and of itself mean that they are admitting that they did something wrong. No, that started to come out the following day on Tuesday, March 20th, 2018, when the media attention to this leaked audio recording had obtained such momentum that the church felt it needed to issue an official statement. And that is what they did on Tuesday morning, March 20th. The statement begins with this preface. In response to questions from multiple media outlets, about allegations that a former church mission president committed sexual assault, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints released the following statement Tuesday, March 20th, 2018. Now we're going to get to the body of the statement. And the amazing thing to me as I read this statement last Tuesday is that the church here admits in bold, red, neon letters that it has absolutely no spirit of discernment. The title of this statement might have been, the LDS Church announces today that it has no spirit of discernment. What is the spirit of discernment? Well, the spirit of discernment in the LDS Church is sort of a subset of the gift of the Holy Ghost. It is something that is heard very often by members of the LDS Church. It is the power that leaders in the LDS Church are supposed to have to discern when somebody is telling them the truth. And in fact, I want to read to you a quote from Joseph Fielding Smith, the 10th president of the LDS Church, regarding the spirit of discernment. This quote comes from chapter 10 of the recently used manual in the LDS Church, Teachings of the Presidents of the Church, in which they went over the teachings of Joseph Fielding Smith. This was in the last couple of years that this lesson was given in the church and that this quote was read. So this is a very contemporary source. This quote is of interest because not only does it say what the spirit of discernment is, Joseph Fielding Smith also has some very unflattering words for LDS leaders who do not have the spirit of discernment. And all the unflattering things he has to say in here apply to all the church leaders who were involved at every level, both local and general, who were not able to discern that Joseph Bishop was a sexual predator who never in a million years should have been called to be president of the Missionary Training Center. Here is what Joseph Fielding Smith says, If we follow the spirit of light, the spirit of truth, the spirit that is set forth in the revelations of the Lord, if we will, through the spirit of prayer and humility, 
Seek for the guidance of the Holy Ghost. The Lord will increase our light and our understanding so that we shall have, drumroll please, the spirit of discernment. We shall understand the truth. We shall know falsehood when we see it, and we shall not be deceived. That's what the spirit of discernment is. He goes on. Who is it that is deceived in this church? Well, certainly it wouldn't be the leaders of the church being deceived into thinking that Joseph Bishop is a man who should be put in charge of missionaries, hundreds of missionaries, thousands of missionaries at the MTC, including sister missionaries, one if not more of whom he ends up sexually abusing. Who is it that is deceived in this church? Not the man who has been faithful in the discharge of duty. So here Joseph Fielding Smith is saying that if a man is faithful in the discharge of his duty in the LDS church, he will not be deceived. Not the man who has made himself acquainted with the word of the Lord, not the man who has practiced the commandments given in these revelations, but the man who is not acquainted with the truth, the man who is in spiritual darkness, the man who does not comprehend and understand the principles of the gospel. Such a man will be deceived, and when these false spirits come among us, he may not understand or be able to distinguish between light and darkness. Notice how Joseph Fielding Smith is absolutely condemning all the leaders of the church who were involved in putting Joseph Bishop in this position as MTC president, up to and including Spencer W. Kimball, who was president of the LDS Church in 1983 when Joseph Bishop was appointed and called to be the president of the MTC, and not only all the leaders who were involved in his original calling, but also all the leaders of the church who were involved all along the way in not only not knowing by the power of discernment who was telling the truth and who was lying when these allegations came to the surface, but also the leaders of the church today who are involved in the cover-up. Yes, up to and including President Russell M. Nelson. According to what Joseph Fielding Smith said about these leaders of the church, they do not practice the commandments, they are not acquainted with the truth, they are in spiritual darkness, they do not comprehend or understand the principles of the gospel. That is the man who will be deceived, according to Joseph Fielding Smith, as quoted in a recent manual of the LDS Church. And now with that background, let's go over the official church statement released on Tuesday, March 20th of 2018. Because as I say, this might as well be a broadside announcing the fact that the church has admitted publicly that it has no spirit of discernment from the local leaders all the way up to the top of the church, including the apostles and the president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Here's their statement from March 20th, Tuesday of last week. These allegations are very serious and deeply disturbing. Well, no duh, Sherlock. It takes no ghost, my lord, come from the grave to tell us this. Yes, they are serious and deeply disturbing. If the allegations of sexual assault are true, it would be a tragic betrayal of our standards and would result in action by the church to formally discipline any member who was guilty of such behavior, especially someone in a position of trust. Now, all of that made a lot of sense when I'm reading this last Tuesday, but what would happen after that during the rest of the week would show that the LDS Church actually did know that these allegations were true and that they were engaged in an overt act to cover up this sex scandal at the MTC. Once again, they said, if the allegations of sexual assault are true, even as they're writing and publishing this, they know they're true. It would be a tragic betrayal of our standards. They already know it's a tragic betrayal 
of their standards and would result in action by the church to formally discipline any member who is guilty of such behavior. Well, they already know that it's true, and I'll get to that later. I don't say that lightly. I require a lot of evidence to show me that that's the case. And actually, the church is going to admit to most of that evidence. It will come from the horse's mouth. So if they already know that it's true, which I will show later, why is the church saying that it would result in action by the church to formally discipline Joseph Bishop? Should not that have already happened? in the past, given the fact that they do know it's true. And by the way, once again, we get to the spirit of discernment. Why does the church and the church leaders and even the church leaders at the highest level not have the spirit of discernment? Why can't they talk to Joseph Bishop, ask him if he did it, and know by the spirit of discernment, which they claim to have, who is telling the truth and who is lying? Once again, this is how the official church statement is advertising in big, bold, capital letters, the fact that the church has no spirit of discernment. It will go on to make similar admissions. Continuing with the church statement, this matter was brought to the attention of the church in 2010. Wait a second, that's eight years ago. If the matter was brought to the attention of the church in 2010 and they have the spirit of discernment, why do they not already know who's telling the truth and who is not? This matter was brought to the attention of the church in 2010 when this former church member, they're talking about Sister X as we are calling her, who served briefly as a missionary in 1984. Okay, this is where the church statement starts to sling mud in an attempt to impeach the credibility of Sister X. Not only do they say that she is a former member, but they also say that she served briefly on a mission, and therefore she should not be trusted in what she has to say. Otherwise, you have to understand, this comment has absolutely no relevance in this press release unless they are doing it specifically for the purpose of trying to impeach her credibility, which of course is what they're trying to do. And the church is doing this even as they know that what she is saying is in large measure true. This is reprehensible. This is starting to get me as mad as I was last Thursday night when the newspaper report showed me conclusively that not only was Sister X telling the truth, but the church knew she was telling the truth and was actively covering it up. We will get to that by the end of this podcast, believe me. Continuing with the church statement, this matter was brought to the attention of the church in 2010 when this former church member, Sister X, who served briefly as a missionary in 1984, told leaders of the Pleasant Grove, Utah West Stake that she had been sexually assaulted by the president of the Provo Missionary Training Center, Joseph Bishop, 25 years earlier. So she reports it to leaders in the Pleasant Grove, Utah West Stake in 2010. The church statement goes on. They listened carefully to the claims being made. And then this was immediately reported to the Pleasant Grove Police Department and the police interviewed her at that time. The church does not know what she said in that interview, but the church received no further communication from the police concerning the matter. Now, here's what the church is doing. The church is trying to imply and actually, <laughs> and they are implying it so strongly that it is difficult to read it any other way, is that she reported the sex abuse to the leaders of the Pleasant Grove, Utah West Stake, who listened carefully, and then this was immediately reported to the Pleasant Grove Police Department, and the police interviewed her at that time. Now, here's the deal, okay? 
The deal is this. The allegation is that this happened at the MTC. The MTC is on the BYU campus. The police that have jurisdiction over the MTC are the BYU police, not the Pleasant Grove Police Department. So that's the first thing that should stand out. Why is this being reported to the Pleasant Grove Police Department when they don't have jurisdiction over anything that would have been alleged to have happened at the MTC? Well, the reason why is because this Sister X got so frustrated with the church because she has been reporting this to church officials since 1987 when she told the bishop of her young single adult ward. She has been trying to get the church to pay attention to these allegations. And since 1987, she has periodically and repeatedly been reporting it to leaders of the church who have not done anything in order to take care of the situation, have not done anything in order to provide some kind of church discipline to Joseph Bishop. They have not done anything rather than try to sweep it under the rug and take no action. And apparently now, in 2010, Sister X got so frustrated with the leaders of the church not doing anything about her allegations that she threatened she was going to shoot Joseph Bishop. And we know this because Sister X admitted it herself. That is the reason that after the leaders in the Pleasant Grove, Utah Westake listened carefully to her claims, they immediately reported it to the Pleasant Grove Police Department because that was the police department that had jurisdiction not over her allegations of sex abuse at the hands of Joseph Bishop, but over her threat to shoot Joseph Bishop. And we know that's true because later on, a smart reporter goes to the Pleasant Grove Police Department and asks them about it. And they say, no, we got the report about the death threat and we talked to Sister X and we determined that it was not a serious death threat, but we did not investigate any sexual abuse allegation because guess what? That's not in our jurisdiction. And now that you know the rest of the story, I'm going to read the sentence from the church statement on Tuesday, March 20th, once again, so you can see how the church is spinning this. In fact, they're spinning it so hard that it's coming 180 degrees and it's basically looking not so much as a spin, but as a lie. This matter was brought to the attention of the church in 2010 when this former church member who served briefly as a missionary in 1984 told leaders of the Pleasant Grove, Utah West Stake that she had been sexually assaulted by the president of the Provo Missionary Training Center, Joseph Bishop, 25 years earlier. They listened carefully to the claims. And notice how the statement does not even mention the threat by Sister X to shoot Joseph Bishop. Why do they omit it? Because they want the reader to confuse which of Sister X's claims, i.e. the claim that she was sexually assaulted by Joseph Bishop in 1984 or the claim that she was going to shoot Joseph Bishop in 2010. And so, as I say, this is an intentional use of language in the official church statement to get the reader to believe that the claim that church leaders in 2010 referred to the Pleasant Grove Police Department was Sister X's claim that she had been sexually assaulted by Joseph Bishop in 1984, when in reality, the claim that church leaders referred to the Pleasant Grove Police Department was the claim that Sister X made that she was going to shoot Joseph Bishop in 2010. Returning once more to the text of the official church statement, church leaders listened carefully to her claims, notice the plural, listened carefully to her claims being made and then this was immediately reported to the Pleasant Grove Police Department and the police interviewed her at that time. This is a cover-up. This is not a statement meant to inform the church and the public as to what is really going on. This is a statement meant to mislead the church and the public as to what is really going on. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. And so we can see that even though church leaders do not have the spirit of discernment, 
they definitely have the spirit of dissembling. And they have the spirit of dissembling in spades. What is that LDS hymn? We will love one another and never dissemble, but cease to do evil and ever be one? Well, I guess that's one hymn that we're going to have to throw on the trash heap. And not only will that hymn have to be removed, but also the hymn, Oh, Say What is Truth, and the hymn, Do What is Right, Let the Consequence Follow. There are going to have to be a lot of deletions in the next edition of the LDS Hymn Book. The church statement goes on. It states, The church does not know what she said in that interview, i.e. the interview with the Pleasant Grove Police Department, but the church received no further communication from the police concerning the matter. Now, that's an interesting statement to make here. Why does the church want to say it received no further communication from the police concerning the matter? Why is it that they want to distance themselves from having any knowledge of the Pleasant Grove Police Department investigation? Could it be that the church is trying to pretend that it doesn't know what the results of that investigation were and therefore the church is not in a position to know that really the claim that was being investigated by the Pleasant Grove Police was not the sex abuse claim after all? Which is exactly what the church is trying to get the reader to believe in the sentence immediately preceding. But think about it. This church statement was released last Tuesday, March 20th. By the end of that day, a news reporter had already contacted the Pleasant Grove Police Department in order to follow up on their investigation. Are you trying to tell me that a news reporter within 24 hours can contact the Pleasant Grove Police Department and find out that they really did not investigate the sex abuse claim of Sister X, but the LDS Church, with all the resources at its disposal and using outside legal counsel, cannot investigate the claim within a period of two months since they received the tape in January of 2018 and find out the same facts. I mean, we're not talking rocket science here. All we're talking about is making a phone call. And so I am left to conclude that this is another instance of intentional deception by the LDS Church in its official statement. They want the reader to believe that they don't know what the content is of the Pleasant Grove Police Department investigation when, in fact, they almost certainly do. And to think that they do not and did not when they issued this statement last Tuesday is laughable. And so it appears that they issued this statement saying they did not know the contents of the police investigation, even though they in fact did know the contents of the police investigation. But not only that, they actually issued the statement saying they did not know the contents of the police investigation because they knew the contents of the police investigation. And they knew that admitting to knowing the contents of the police investigation would be counterproductive to the lie they're trying to sell. This is a cover-up at the highest levels, and if that's not lying, I'm not Radio Free Mormon. At the same time, the statement goes on, the church referred these allegations to the local ecclesiastical leaders of Joseph Bishop. Those leaders met with Mr. Bishop, who denied the allegations. Okay, here's where the spirit of discernment comes in. You've got Sister X saying that he raped her at the MTC in 1984. You've got Mr. Bishop denying those allegations to his church leaders. And the spirit of discernment was meant for situations like this. So that by the power of the spirit, the church leaders can discern which is telling the truth. Is it Mr. Bishop or is it Sister X? No, no spirit of discernment here. The statement goes on, unable to verify the allegations. Well, that's what the spirit of discernment is supposed to do. Unable to verify the allegations, they did not impose any formal church discipline on Mr. Bishop at that time. 
Once again, this is an admission by the church that they have no spirit of discernment. The matter resurfaced in 2016 when the same individual, Sister X, contacted a state president in Pueblo, Colorado. Well, where was his discernment? Because there's no mention of the state president in Pueblo, Colorado taking any action either. And then again, a few weeks ago in January 2018, when the church was contacted by a lawyer representing her. So now the church is admitting that in January of 2018, i.e. two months before they issue this statement and two months before this audio recording is released publicly, the church knew about the audio recording. And notice here, the church wants to try and shrink the time it's known about the audio recording. It knows it's a problem that they've known about the audio recording for two months since January of 2018. And that is why the statement says, and then again, a few weeks ago in January 2018. Well, it really wasn't a few weeks, at least not according to the common definition of a few, which is two or three. Really, it was closer to eight weeks before. The church is aware this is a problem and that's why they try and make it sound like it's less time they've known about the recording than it really is. And then again, a few weeks ago in January 2018, when the church was contacted by a lawyer representing her, he provided a copy of a recording that she had made of a conversation between her and 85-year-old Joseph Bishop in December 2017. So now the church is admitting it is known about this recording for two months. And yet the church waited until the recording was made public before it began deleting Joseph Smith's books from the Deseret Bookstore and from the BYU Bookstore website. What had changed in the past two months between January when the church first found out about this recording and March 19th when it was leaked to the public? Well, as far as evidence goes, nothing really had changed. The church knew about the recording. They knew what was in the recording. They knew that the recording sounded, in some respects, damning to Joseph Bishop. And yet, the church did not take down his books and began scrubbing the church websites of any reference to Joseph Bishop until this was made public. What that means to me is it is not the nature of the allegation that caused the church concern. It is not the evidence in support of the allegation that caused the church concern because both of those things were known by the church two months before back in January. Instead, the critical factor for the church and the one thing that caused them to take action to begin scrubbing the record of Joseph Bishop was the release of this recording publicly. Now on the whole, I think it's probably a good thing that they took down Joseph Bishop's books from the bookstores owned by the church and from their websites. It's probably the smallest thing that the church needs to do in order to respond to this situation, but at least it's one thing. The problem is the church didn't do it until this was leaked to the public. And as soon as it was leaked to the public, they were Johnny on the spot. And within 24 hours, they had scrubbed the record of Joseph Bishop from the church websites. It had gone down the rabbit hole. If the church was taking this action because of the nature of the allegation and the evidence in support of it, they would have done that two months ago. The only thing that changed was the fact it was made public, which tells me that the church will do the right thing, not because it's the right thing to do, but only when it becomes something that is publicly embarrassing to the church. That's when the church goes into action. And I think it's a fair conclusion to reach that if this recording had not been made public, Joseph Bishop's books would still be available for purchase at Deseret Books. The church statement goes on, since that time, the church has engaged in an investigation of this individual's allegations. 
In the course of that investigation, both she and Mr. Bishop have been interviewed by outside legal counsel. Now, outside legal counsel apparently means Curtin McConkie, the church's law office, because I can't imagine who else would be interviewing these people other than the church's own law firm. Nevertheless, they are pleased to refer to them as outside legal counsel, as if in some way they were unbiased and objective in the matter and not representing their client, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Not surprisingly, the statement goes on, the stories, timelines, and recollections of those involved are dramatically different. This woman reaffirmed her allegations, and Mr. Bishop has again denied them. Well, that's not really completely true, because actually, on December 5th of 2017, last year, Joseph Bishop was interviewed by the BYU Police Department, the correct police agency with jurisdiction over this allegation, and although he denied the rape, he admitted to asking Sister X to expose her breasts to him and that Sister X complied. Those are Joseph Bishop's own words to the BYU police. Yes, this is another police report the church is pretending it didn't know about. And I do not believe for one second that the church, at the time of the issuance of this statement last Tuesday, did not know that that was the case especially since they've already admitted that they have been conducting an investigation of Sister X's allegations. Now, once again, this is information that would be coming out as the week progressed. But as the week progresses, we find out that late November of last year, Sister X contacted the BYU Police Department, the correct police agency with jurisdiction over allegations of criminal conduct made at the MTC, and that the BYU police then contacted in early December of last year, Joseph Bishop himself, specifically December 5th, 2017, according to the police report. And in the police reports of the BYU Police Department, Joseph Bishop, although he denied raping Sister X, he admitted to asking her to show him her breasts, and Joseph Bishop says that she complied when she was a sister missionary at the MTC. BYU is a private school. It is owned by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The BYU Police Department works at BYU and works for BYU and is therefore also under the control and jurisdiction and authority of the LDS Church. So please don't try and tell me that the LDS Church did not know that this admission by Joseph Bishop was in the BYU Police Reports. And what happened, by the way, was this, is that on Tuesday, KUTV in Utah made a Freedom of Information Act request to the BYU Police Department asking for any reports they had of any interviews they had done related to this case. What they produced in response to the Freedom of Information Act request was a highly redacted police report. It was almost completely blacked out. Now, why was it so heavily redacted? Well, one would suspect that it's because of influence of church leaders. And the reason I suspect it's because of influence of church leaders is that KUTV appealed this release of a highly redacted police report as not being in compliance with the Freedom of Information Act itself. And on Wednesday evening, the BYU Police Department, after having apparently met with whoever they needed to meet with, and deciding maybe they really did need to provide a less redacted version of the police report, did provide to KUTV a less redacted version of the police report. And what we found out on Wednesday evening was that part of what they had redacted was the fact that when BYU police were talking to Joseph Bishop in early December of 2017, he admitted that he had asked Sister X to reveal her breasts to him and that she complied. I believe that this is also evidence of the church being involved 
in a cover-up of this matter. And yet it is not conclusive evidence, but only suggestive. The conclusive evidence is found in the accumulation of all the evidence, and especially what gets revealed Thursday night. Remember, we're only up to Wednesday night at this point in our recounting of last week's activities. The church statement from Tuesday goes on, we have no record of an interview between Elder Carlos E. Assay, 1926 to 1999 and this individual that's because she had alleged that when she had made this complaint initially in 1987 to her bishop that he had put her in contact with elder assay from the quorum of the 70 and that she had met with him that elder assay told sister x that he would take care of this matter with joseph bishop and that sister x thereafter heard nothing further from elder carlos assay that's why the church puts this in a statement we have no record of an interview between elder carlos assay and this individual, and we apparently will just have to take their word for it. But as we have seen on a number of occasions in this very statement, the church has a nasty habit of trying to spin things, and not just spin things, but out and out lie, that I can give no credence to their claim that we have no record of an interview between Elder Carlos Assay and this individual. That could be spun in any number of ways by a person whose intent on hiding the truth, as the LDS Church appears to be. The statement concludes, The Church as a religious organization, by the way, this is a religious organization that claims to have the spirit of discernment. The Church as a religious organization does not have the investigative tools available to law enforcement agencies. So here's the part where the Church once again admits, we've got no spirit of discernment here, we can't tell who's telling the truth and who's not, in spite of what Joseph Fielding Smith said in a very recent manual that we used in our church classes and that was studied by members throughout the church as part of their regular curriculum. And once again, I want to add parenthetically that the irony of this is made only greater by the fact that in the Book of Mormon, in Helaman chapter 9, we have an example of an individual named Nephi. He's one of the third or fourth or fifth Nephi's in the book, but his name is Nephi and he actually solves a murder by the use of the spirit of discernment and by the Holy Ghost. Well, that's a story in the Book of Mormon. Apparently, it has no effect on what really goes on in the LDS Church today. Nephi had the spirit of discernment. Modern church leaders, not so much. The statement goes on. Nor can the church substitute for the courts in adjudicating legal claims. Now, why does the church want to spin this as purely a legal claim when, if true, it also constitutes a violation of the law of chastity and could be dealt with through disciplinary action through church courts on Joseph Bishop? I mean, it's not like this would be the only time that a person were disciplined through a church court for a violation of the law of chastity, for crying out loud. It is a claim that, if true, could involve legal action, and yet, the church has its own court system. They are called courts of love or courts of discipline. So the church does substitute all the time for courts in adjudicating legal claims. What the church is really saying here is that if they want to excommunicate or discipline a member, they will do so based on little to no evidence. But if the church does not want to excommunicate or discipline a member, then they will shove it off on the legal system and say, we have to wait until the legal system resolves this case before we will take any action ourselves. And it is also quite likely that as of the time the church is issuing this statement on Tuesday, March 20th, they already know that the statute of limitations for the allegations made by Sister X 
has long since passed. In other words, they already know there will be no criminal case. The statute of limitations is gone. Charges will not be filed against Joseph Bishop. And there will be no determination of the truth of these claims, at least not in a criminal case. Now, there's still the possibility of there being a civil case. And yet, any civil case when filed and if filed, will be resolved years down the road and probably long after Joseph Bishop has shuffled off this mortal coil. He is 85 years old. He is in bad health, as he reveals in the recorded interview. And once he goes the way of all flesh, then the church won't have to worry about taking any church discipline against Joseph Bishop. And in conclusion of the statement, the church says this completely outrageous comment. Nevertheless, the church takes seriously its responsibility to hold its members accountable for their conduct with respect of the laws of God and man. Well, as of this time, the church already knows that regardless of the fact that Sister X has accused him of raping her and Brother Bishop has denied that he raped her, the church already knows as of this time that actually Brother Bishop had admitted to taking Sister X into a room at the MTC asking her to show him her breasts and that she complied. And one would think that that might be a violation of the laws of God, at least as understood in the LDS Church, and certainly in respect to an MTC president using his authority and power over a sister missionary who is under his jurisdiction, control, and at least theoretically his protection while she is at the MTC. The statement says, Nevertheless, the church takes seriously its responsibility to hold its members accountable for their conduct with respect to the laws of God and man. To that end, the church is continuing its investigation of this individual's claims and will act consistent with its long-standing policy of no tolerance for abuse. Well, its long-standing policy of no tolerance for abuse is a joke. Now, it may apply to me or to you, but it obviously doesn't apply to people who get further and further up the leadership food chain in the LDS Church, such as the president of the MTC, such as Joseph Bishop. The church is doing anything but acting consistently with its long-standing policy of no tolerance for abuse when it comes to Joseph Bishop. So that's the end of the church statement that was issued on Tuesday, March 20th. The next thing we know from the record is that on January 16th, 2018, the LDS Church brought up the idea with the Salt Lake Chamber that its top legislative priority should include outlawing recordings made between two parties unless both parties consented. Now, this looks extremely suspicious from my point of view, that the church now admits that in January they were presented with a copy of this recording between Sister X and Joseph Bishop, that she apparently recorded it surreptitiously without his consent, that this is legal under current Utah law, which requires that in a private conversation only one party, i.e. Sister X, consent to it. But now all of a sudden, after being presented with this audio recording, the church decides it wants to push for legislation in Utah to change that long-standing law and require both parties to a private conversation consent to its being recorded. Now, it is true, number one, that this recording happened in Arizona and so would not be subject to Utah law. It is also true, number two, that any such law would not be retroactive in nature and therefore would not impact the recording that Sister X made of Joseph Bishop. And yet it appears that the church sees a threat, the church sees a problem, the church sees the possibility of exposure with such recordings and moves expeditiously in order to try and keep such recordings from happening 
in the future. Later the same day, Tuesday, March 20th, after the church made its statement talking about reporting the claims to the Pleasant Grove police, you'll remember that in 2010, they said that Sister X reported these allegations to church leaders who then referred it to the Pleasant Grove Police Department. In an article by the Herald, published on Tuesday, March 20th, the reporter, Janelle Pugmire, refers to this part of the statement and did some follow-up investigative work by contacting the Pleasant Grove Police Department herself to find out what was really going on. In the article, she quotes that paragraph from the statement, They listened carefully to the claims being made, and then this was immediately reported to the Pleasant Grove Police Department, and the police interviewed her at that time, the church statement said. But then the press talked to Captain Michael Robertson of the Pleasant Grove Police Department, the guy who's in charge. The article goes on, Captain Michael Robertson of the Pleasant Grove Police Department acknowledged on Tuesday the department was aware of the allegations, but said Pleasant Grove's involvement was not about the allegations. Quote, the woman contacted the church leaders. She made threats she could possibly hurt someone, Robertson said. We went out to her home to visit her and make sure she was okay. We never investigated the alleged abuse, period, end of quote. So you can see that as this began to unfold, the church statement that was made early on Tuesday is shown by the end of Tuesday to be at least in this respect a complete and utter distortion of the truth of what really happened. And indeed, we can tell from this that Sister X at the time apparently lived in Pleasant Grove because that's the police department that said they went out to visit her. They went out to visit her in Pleasant Grove because she made the threat to shoot Joseph Bishop and they went out there to investigate the threats she made that she could possibly hurt someone, not investigate the allegations of abuse. On Wednesday, March 21st, the cover-up continued to unravel. It was on that day, as you will recall, that the press obtained an unredacted copy of the BYU police investigation and interview of Joseph Bishop from early December of 2017. This from an article by Tad Walsh, updated March 21st, 2018, in the Deseret News, under the title, Woman Levels Accusations Against Former MTC President. From the article, she, Sister X, contacted University Police at BYU in November. Now we're starting to find out that she contacted the BYU Police in November. Two detectives interviewed her on December 4th in Colorado, which is apparently where she lives now. They then interviewed Bishop, Joseph Bishop, at his home in Arizona. They presented their findings to the Utah County Attorney's Office, University Police Lieutenant Stephen Messick says. So they're getting this information from Stephen Messick, Lieutenant for the BYU Police Department. And together with the less redacted version of the police report, they also presented a statement that they had presented their report and investigation to the Utah County Attorney's Office and the Utah County Attorney's Office said this, quote, I have no reason to doubt the victim's disclosure. That is the prosecuting attorney at the Utah County Attorney's Office named David Sturgill. He states, I have no reason to doubt the victim's disclosure and would have likely prosecuted Mr. Bishop, but for the expiration of the statute of limitations. Deputy Utah County Attorney David Sturgill said in a message to University Police. Once again, he states, I have no reason to doubt the victim's disclosure and would have likely prosecuted Mr. Bishop, but for the expiration of the statute of limitations. Now, if you look closely at the BYU police report, you will see that it was referred to the prosecutor back in December of 2017 
and that the prosecutor returned it to the BYU police with the explanation that he could not prosecute due to the statute of limitations having expired on December 23, 2017. So that statement by the prosecutor is not a new statement. It is an old statement. It was not made to the press. It was made to the police as part of explaining why it was that he would not be filing those charges. And because the prosecutor explained to the police on December 23rd of 2017 that he would not be filing the charges because of the expiration of the statute of limitations, that is why that statement by the prosecutor was released to the press on Wednesday of last week, along with the police reports themselves. So knowing that the prosecutor had declined to file charges because the statute of limitations had expired, and that the prosecutor had made this determination on December 23rd of 2017, and also knowing that the LDS Church no doubt had a copy of the unredacted portion of this police report long prior to issuing its official church statement on Tuesday of last week, it does tend to make the following words from the official church statement ring hollow. The church, as a religious organization, you will remember it says, does not have the investigative tools available to law enforcement agencies, nor can the church substitute for the courts in adjudicating legal claims. The church has great faith in the judicial system to determine the truth of these claims. Well, that's a remarkable thing for the church to be saying when they already know that criminal charges will not and cannot be filed against Joseph Bishop because the statute of limitations has already expired. As I say, it makes this language from the official church statement talking about how much faith the church has in the judicial system in resolving these claims ring somewhat hollow. Now, I would like to say a few more things about this BYU police report that was released to the public. The first thing we know from it is that it was on November 28, 2017 that Sister X contacted the BYU police regarding this allegation. Page 6 of the report says this, Detective Jeff Long and I met with Sister X at her home on December 4th, 2017. So she initially makes this allegation, contacts regarding the allegation, and then on December 4th, the detectives go and meet with Sister X in order to interview her and get the details of her side of the story. The report goes on, Sister X said Joseph took her out of class on several occasions to have one-on-one -on -one conversations. Now you've got to understand, if you've never been a missionary, and if you've never been a Mormon, being in the MTC is an extremely structured environment. You have a companion who is assigned to you in the MTC. You are always supposed to be with that companion. That is one of the cardinal rules of the MTC. And the only person who could override that rule would be someone in authority above you, like, I don't know, the MTC president. She said Joseph, i.e. Joseph Bishop, took her out of class on several occasions to have one-on-one -on -one conversations. She said some of the conversations were about blank, and that's where it's redacted. Apparently, that's the name of someone else. She said some of the conversations were about blank, and some stories from Joseph were of a sexual nature. At one point, Joseph asked her if she wanted to see a room where he would sometimes prepare for his MTC duties. Now listen to this next part carefully. This will become key in the case. He took her to a small room which had a bed, TV, VHS tapes, and chair. And Sister X makes it clear when she's recording her interview with Joseph Bishop that this room was actually in the basement 
of the MTC. It wasn't up on the regular first floor where all the other rooms are and all the missionaries are and everybody else is. It was down in the basement, this room that she's describing. And she describes it as having in it a bed, TV, VHS tapes, and chair. Sister X goes on. They sat on the bed and talked. And at one point, he tried to kiss her. She resisted. And he then ripped her blouse open, pushed her on the bed, ripped her skirt, and pulled down her pantyhose and garments. Sister X then said sexual intercourse occurred without her consent, describing brief penetration of about two inches. But since his penis was somewhat limp, he didn't penetrate deeper. She then pushed him off and left the room. So that's the police report's account of the version that Sister X told the police back on December 4th of 2017. And this more detailed description of the rape by Sister X may account for why it is that in some places she describes it as an attempted rape, in other places she describes it as a rape. Now under the law, what she has described is a rape because a rape occurs with any penetration, however slight, of any bodily orifice. And it doesn't make any difference if it's only two inches and it doesn't make any difference if it didn't go any deeper because his penis was somewhat limp. That qualifies as a rape under the law. So, based on this police report, we may conclude that although Joseph Bishop was called to PERV as president of the MTC, he had not yet had his calling and erection made sure. Now, this report goes on and says that after interviewing Sister X, Detective Long and I met with Joseph, that's Joseph Bishop, at his residence on December 5th, 2017. Joseph's account was fairly similar to Sister X's, except for... The rape. Joseph told us that he did go to his small MTC preparation room in the cafeteria area with Sister X. Then while talking to her, he asked her to show him her breasts, which she did. When asked to explain why his account about the rape was different than hers, he said he either can't remember it or that Blank was exaggerating her account. And now note this, Joseph said the room did not have a bed, TV, or VHS tapes. That is significant. It's also significant that he's not just denying that it happened, but he's saying he can't remember it. Now, maybe this has to do with memory issues he's having when he's 85, but it is always interesting if someone is accused of something as heinous as this, when the reaction is not, hell no, I didn't do it. The reaction is, mm, I don't remember. And as I say, Joseph Bishop goes on to say, the room did not have a bed, TV, or VHS tapes. So he is describing a different room, a room that is above ground near the cafeteria area without any bed, TV, or VHS tapes. And then I'm going to tell you that I'm looking at the report right now on my screen, and there are four lines that are all blacked out. And I would really like to know what it is that's in those blacked out lines, because you see all the blacked out lines before this are small, and they obviously cover people's names and addresses. But here, after Joseph says the room did not have a bed, TV, or VHS tapes, there are four completely blacked out lines still in this police report. Oh, and remember that this admission by Joseph Bishop, he doesn't cop to the whole thing. He doesn't admit to the rape, but he does admit to asking Sister X to show him her breasts and saying she did. That is part of the report that was completely blacked out and redacted in the original redacted version that the BYU police gave to the media in response to their Freedom of Information Act request. And it was only after the media appealed and after a day went by that the BYU police suddenly gave them a less redacted version of the police report and now they could see the admission by Joseph Bishop 
that he made to the BYU police back on December 5th, 2017. The other thing that's significant about the fact that this was returned to the BYU police by the prosecutor's office on December 23rd, 2017, is that that is the point at which this report became subject to a Freedom of Information Act request. Under the Freedom of Information Act, or whatever corollary they have to that in the state of Utah, not everything that a government produces is subject to disclosure. One exception in the act is for police reports related to an investigation that is ongoing. So if this police investigation had been ongoing at the time the request was made by the press for copies of the police reports, the BYU Police Department would not, indeed should not, have given them a copy. However, because the prosecutor sent it back to them on December 23rd saying, can't file, statute of limitations is passed, that was the signal under the law that the investigation was over and now these reports were subject to FOIA requests. So once again, please don't expect me to believe that the church did not already have a copy of this police report in their hands since January. Think about this once again. The church statement was released Tuesday, and by Wednesday evening, the press had an unredacted copy of this police report in their hands pursuant to a FOIA request. As of the time, the church admits that Sister X's lawyer contacted them in January and gave them a copy of this audio tape. The BYU police report had already been closed as far as an investigation went and was subject to a FOIA request. So what I cannot believe is that with two months in investigating this case from January to March when they issued the statement on Tuesday, March 20th, the LDS Church did not obtain a copy of this police report when it took less than two days after the release of the statement for the media to obtain a copy of this police report. The church knew what was in this police report long before the media did, or long before they issued their statement. And in fact, that is why I find it especially suspicious that the police report that was released to the press originally on Tuesday was severely redacted with almost all information in it unable to be read, including the confession by Joseph Bishop of asking to see Sister X's breasts and her complying. Now, a couple of other things related to this police report. It's interesting to me that after the police talk to Joseph Bishop on December 5th, Joseph Bishop picks up the phone and calls Sister X. Now, I've read a lot of police reports in my career, and this part is not that uncommon, that somebody gets the police called on them for wrongdoing, they talk to the police, and right after the police leave, they pick up the phone and call the person who sick the police on them to tell them that they're not that happy about it. And Sister X tells the police that Joseph Bishop had called, saying that he had told the police everything except the facts of the rape. And it was at this point that Sister X, apparently for the first time, told Joseph Bishop that she had recorded their earlier conversation, the one from where she was posing as a reporter. Police then made contact with Joseph Bishop and told him he shouldn't have contact with the victim since he is involved in a criminal investigation as the suspect. Joseph Bishop agreed he wouldn't call her again and he wanted to tell the police that Sister X said he was part of a bigger picture and that she told him she wanted to expose the LDS Church to this kind of incidents. And then another big long line is blacked out. So as I say, someone getting the cops called on him, it's not that unusual for them to pick up the phone and call the person who sick the cops on him. The thing that's unusual in this case, and the thing I don't understand is, how was it that Joseph Bishop had Sister X's phone number? How was it he was able to pick up the phone and just give her a call? That part, I don't have an answer to. One other thing I want to mention from this BYU police report is that on December 7th, 
2017, they also interviewed Sister X's Spanish instructor from the MTC back in 1984. Sister X remembered the name of her Spanish instructor at the MTC, gave that name to the police. They called the Spanish instructor on December 7, 2017, and they talked over the phone. Here's the report. I asked blank, this is a redacted portion with obviously her name, so I'll just call her Spanish instructor. I asked Spanish instructor if she taught Spanish at the MTC in 1984. She replied she did. I asked her if she remembers one of her students and then gives the name. She said she does remember Sister X. So that's remarkable right there to me that the Spanish instructor is going to remember Sister X after over 30 years. But she adds that it was so long ago she would not have too much information. I asked the Spanish instructor what she could remember about Sister X. The Spanish instructor said that Sister X claimed that she was engaged to be married. The Spanish instructor thought that was odd since missionaries are not normally engaged when they arrive at the MTC. I asked her if Sister X was ever removed out of class by anyone. And amazingly, the Spanish instructor says she could remember that happening. Now that is remarkable to me, not only that she remembers this student from 35 years ago, but also that she remembers this student, Sister X, being called out of class. It would seem likely that the only reason she would remember this student being called out of class is because it was a very unusual circumstance for anybody to be called out of her class. And if the BYU Police Department were on the ball, they should have asked her why it was that she remembers this and what was distinctive about this sister being pulled out of class, so much so that she could remember it after all these years. I mean, is it possible the Spanish instructor remembers it because of who? pulled her out of class? Like, I don't know, maybe the MTC president? In a similar vein, the BYU Police Department seems to have dropped the ball a bit in their interview of Joseph Bishop. Joseph Bishop, as you recall, denies the allegation of rape, but admits to asking Sister X to uncover her breast and then says she complied. Okay, well, if you've admitted to that much, what happened before that? What led up to your asking her to uncover her breasts. I mean, did you just say it out of the blue? Were you talking about the Book of Mormon stories and then suddenly you're asking her to expose herself? That doesn't seem likely. Something must have led up to this. And what happened after this? So what, he's just talking to her about how to be a good missionary? Then he asks her to expose herself and she does. And then what happens? I mean, it's hard to just go back to talking about being a good missionary after you ask her to expose herself and she does. Something must happen after that. It is only reasonable, natural, and logical, and yet the BYU Police Department does not ask those follow-up questions, which is unfortunate because I think that a good interview of this witness might have yielded more information than they were able to get from him. Okay, that's enough of the BYU Police reports. Let's go back to Wednesday, March 21st. On Wednesday, the Salt Lake Tribune ran an extensive article on the subject by Peggy Fletcher Stack. This is an excellent article. It is well written. It shows that the author really did her research and it hews extremely closely to the facts without getting into speculation or premature conclusions. I'm not going to read this entire article. What I am going to do is I am going to read about three sections from it in order to highlight different points to make sure that I cover them in this podcast. The first thing I want to mention from this article is about Sister X saying that she had not consented to the release of this audio taped interview, the audio that she herself recorded of her interview with Joseph Bishop, and the fact that the release of this audio 
may have undermined settlement negotiations she was having with Mormon officials. Now, what she has done with this statement is only make obvious what it was that I already knew from the facts that I knew before reading this must be going on behind the scenes. If her attorney approaches the church in January of 2018, which the church admits he did, with a copy of this audio tape, there's only one reason to be doing that, and that is to be starting engaging in negotiations with the LDS church about what kind of settlement can be reached in order to keep this from going to court and in order to keep this from going public. The reason I say in order to keep this from going public is because of two things. First off, it's very common practice that a church or organization or corporation especially is going to want to keep embarrassing information like this from going public. So as part of any settlement negotiation, they're typically going to require a non-disclosure agreement be signed by Sister X and her attorney that in exchange for whatever money they give her, she has to be quiet about it, never tell anybody else about it, and if she does tell anybody else about it after signing the non-disclosure agreement, then she can be sued by the church for violation of that contract. In this way, whatever settlement sum they end up arriving at is sometimes called hush money because the money is being paid to Sister X in order to keep her quiet. Now, I say that number one because it's obvious to me as an attorney that that's what's going on behind the scenes. And the investigation that the church is doing and that the church admits it's doing and interviewing people and talking to them has to do with their going out and trying to find out how strong her case is against them in order to come up with a figure that they think is suitable to offer as a settlement. It is also possible that the church is going out and calling people in order to try and hide information and make sure information does not come to light, but we'll get to that in a second. The second reason I say it's obvious that settlement negotiations have been going on for two months is because of what Sister X says here in this Salt Lake Tribune article. She said the release may have undermined settlement negotiations she was having with Mormon officials. Well, of course it might undermine the settlement negotiations. If you are in settlement negotiations with a corporation and your big trump card, your big leverage card, is that you will not go public with these allegations if they come to the table and pony up enough money, then of course having this leaked now takes away that advantage from your bargaining position. So that's why she said that the release of the audio may have undermined settlement negotiations she was having with Mormon officials. The second thing I want to mention from this Salt Lake Tribune article is the fact that in 1987, that's three years after the abuse happened, Sister X contacted her bishop at a young single adult ward and reported to him the abuse that had taken place by Joseph Bishop, the MTC president. Now this was part of Sister X's story. This was part of her version of events, that three years after the abuse in 1984, after she'd gotten back from her mission and was attending a young single adult ward, she contacted her bishop to report the abuse by Joseph Bishop. Now, according to Sister X, her bishop told her that he would get in contact with Carlos Assay, who was a member, or it's AC. It was a little bit of an unusual pronunciation. I remember him from back when I was a young member of the church. He was somewhat of a popular speaker as a member of the 70, and that's always a plus, and quite rare for that matter. But regardless of how you pronounce it, Sister X said that the bishop of her young single adult ward, to whom she reported this first in 1987, said that he would get in contact with Carlos Acey 
and that Carlos Acey, after that, actually made contact with Sister X. This is according to Sister X, that Carlos Acey made contact with her, that Carlos Acey told her that he would contact Joseph Bishop and that he would take care of the situation. Sister X says that after that, she never heard anything back from Carlos Acey or any other member of church leadership in order to advise her what had happened as a result of her making this disclosure. And at least as of Wednesday, the article says, but the bishop who asked not to be named said in an interview with the Tribune that she, Sister X, did not use the words rape or attempted rape, instead describing other misconduct. He said he didn't believe her, nor did he tell any superiors. So here, not only does her former bishop say he did not tell any superiors, which is a key difference from her story, and we'll get into that in a second, he also says he didn't believe her. His explanation was, I felt the allegations were groundless. They were so far-fetched and not internally logical. He went on to say, it takes a lot of vetting for a man to be approved for a position like MTC president, which made her story very hard to believe. So this bishop was a good man for the job. He was a true blue Mormon and he understood the power of discernment. And he understood that when the leadership of the church calls a man to the important position of being the president of the missionary training center, then he has to be vetted, at least by the Holy Ghost, and he is not going to be doing these kinds of things to sister missionaries. So it was obvious to him that it was a sister missionary who was making up this story because it never would have happened. It was incredible to believe. It was in fact impossible for him to believe. And therefore his story is that she told him this, but she didn't tell him about the rape but only about other conduct, and he did not tell any superiors. Now, please note that this bishop was subsequently interviewed by KUTV, and his name was given. They actually have a recording of this interview. And here's what happens. His name is Ron Levitt, L-E-A-V-I-T-T. This is the name of Sister X's bishop from 1987. They asked him if he remembered the allegations that she had made, and he says, Oh, heavens, yes. Levitt says, according to her, he took her and I think another sister missionary down to the basement and showed them some pornography. This is Bishop Levitt's recollection from 1987 when Sister X made these allegations to him initially. Now, critically, he does remember that she came to him and made allegations. That's consistent with her story. It's in the details that they begin to differ a bit. When asked, if he reported the incident to the police or the leadership of the LDS church, Levitt said he did not. I didn't think it had much credence. I wasn't going to risk sullying the reputation of someone based on that kind of a report. So although former Bishop Ron Levitt confirms the fact that indeed Sister X did come to him in 1987 and make reports of a sexual nature against Joseph Bishop, he differs as to his recollection of the details of her report, thinking that it only involved pornography and thinking that there was another sister missionary involved. However, he does remember, ha ha ha, however, he does remember that she told him that Joseph Bishop took her down to the basement and showed them some pornography. This basement thing is going to be huge in a second, believe me. This is the quote from Ron Levitt the former bishop, according to her, he took her and I think another sister missionary down to the basement and showed them some pornography. See, this is a room in the basement, not a room off of the cafeteria. As Joseph Bishop told the police on December 5th when he admitted to asking 
Sister X, to expose herself. And after saying that he did not believe her, he also says that he did not report this either to the police or to anyone higher up. And then at the end of the interview, there's this little throwaway line that Ron Levitt says, which is critically important. What he says is this. Levitt says he has heard from officials with the LDS Church at least three times in the last week and a half about the allegations. Okay, wait a second. This is Thursday of last week. It has been only two days since the church released the statement. He's saying that the first time he heard from the LDS church was a week and a half ago, which puts it at at least a week before the church issued the statement. So the LDS church did contact Ron Levitt at least one week before they released their official statement. Now, why is that important? The first reason it's important is because the LDS church obviously now and demonstrably knew about the meeting that Sister X had with her bishop, Ron Levitt, in 1987, and that she had made allegations of a sexual nature against Joseph Bishop in that meeting with her bishop. So if the church knows that, why is the church studiously avoiding making any mention of it when they released their official statement on Tuesday of last week? No mention whatsoever is made of it. Instead, they say this matter was brought to the attention of the church in 2010. That's a lie. This matter was not brought to the attention of the church in 2010. This matter was brought to the attention of the church in 1987. Why is it the church wants to ignore the report that Sister X made to her bishop in 1987? Well, the reason is quite simple. Right, wrong, or indifferent, people tend to look at how long it takes a victim to report a rape as evidence of whether the rape happened. In other words, it is common to think that the longer it takes a victim to report that a rape happened, the less likely the rape is to have happened, and the quicker a victim reports rape, the more likely it is that a rape happened. Now, this doesn't have anything to do with reality, but it does have a lot to do with the common popular perception. So, in their statement, the church wants the readers to think that Sister X did not report this until 2010, which if true would mean that Sister X waited 25 years in order to report this. And please note that the statement issued by the church plays that up because what it says is, in a long extended sentence, this matter was brought to the attention of the church in 2010 when this former church member, who served briefly as a missionary in 1984, told leaders of the Pleasant Grove, Utah, West Stake that she had been sexually assaulted by the president of the Prova Missionary Training Center, Joseph Bishop, 25 years earlier. You see, there it is. They want to point out to the reader that the first time this was brought to the attention of the church was in 2010, and here's Sister Acts making a claim of rape that happened, what, 25 years earlier? Who's going to believe that? Why would she wait 25 years to bring it to the attention of the church? What the church knew and what the church avoided mentioning was that, Actually, she had made a disclosure about Joseph Bishop not in 2010, 25 years after the rape, but in 1987, only three years later. Now, there's also a second reason that the church wants to claim that they didn't know about it until 2010, and that is because they are trying to distance themselves from responsibility. They're trying to make it as recently as possible that they became aware of this allegation to try and show that really their hands are clean. At least the hands of the top leadership of the church are clean because 
This matter was not brought to the attention of the church until 2010. And even then they're saying it was only to local leaders. We didn't know anything about it. And this does seem to be what the church is interested in. This is something that only the local leaders knew about. Top leaders did not know about it. Hey, our hands are clean. Who knows what those crazy local leaders are doing? They're doing their best. God bless them. But don't look at us because we didn't know. So this is the critical part now. Because according to Sister X's story, her bishop from 1987 put her in contact with a general authority named Carlos Acey. And that is why I think it's so interesting that not only does this bishop, when he's interviewed by KUTV, say, hey, I didn't report it to police and I didn't report it to anybody higher in authority than myself, which means I did not report it to Carlos Acey. I didn't report it to a 70. But in conjunction with that, he adds that he has heard from officials with the LDS Church at least three times in the last week and a half about the allegations. Okay, now look, what this bishop says is important. And when I say this bishop, I mean the former bishop of Sister X, who was the bishop in her young single adult ward in 1987. What he has to say is important, but it's not vast. It's not detailed. It's not intricate. He can say it in a minute, everything that he remembers. So my question is this, given the fact that his story is so small and what he recalls is so little, why is it that officials from the LDS church have to talk with him three times in the last week and a half? You know, you'd think that one call would be enough to get his story and write it down. You wouldn't need to talk to him again, possibly a second time. But why a third time? That seems rather excessive for a witness who has such little information to be contacted three times in the last week and a half about the allegations. It sounds to me like more was going on in these phone calls than simply getting Ron Levitt's side of the story. That could have been done in one phone call, and in fact, not a very long phone call. But Ron Levitt himself says there were three phone calls he got from church officials. And I have a sneaking suspicion that in the second and or third phone call, Ron Levitt was not just giving information to the church officials. He was getting information from the church officials. And I am suspicious that the information he was getting from the church officials was to tell the press and anybody else who asked that Carlos Acey was not involved and that he never reported it to Carlos Acey and that Carlos Acey has since passed away in 1999 and therefore is not around to refute Ron Levitt if he does as church officials direct and says he never reported it to anybody higher up to contain the damage, to make this the responsibility of local leaders only and not higher ups. Now, of course, I cannot prove this. I do know, however, that similar things have happened in other situations, such as in the excommunication of D. Michael Quinn, when his state president was told by the area authority above him, i.e. the general authority above the state president, that he needed to excommunicate Michael Quinn. And not only that the state president needed to excommunicate Michael Quinn, but that the state president needed to keep the general authority out of the picture. And the state president needed to say, hey, it was all my idea. I came up with this idea. I wasn't told to do this by the general authority above me. So my speculation that the three phone calls that Ron Levitt admits to getting from church officials in the week and a half prior to his interview last Thursday may have been giving him similar direction to shield general authorities 
and to maintain the responsibility himself is not without some basis in historical precedent. So now that we are getting more and more facts as the week is going by after the release of the audio on Monday and after the release of the church statement on Tuesday, what we are finding out is a pattern. In the statement, the church said it is continuing its investigation into these allegations against Joseph Bishop. Well, here's what the record shows so far. Sister X reported this in 1987. The church took no action. Sister X reported it again in 2010. The church took no action. Sister X reported it again in 2016. The church took no action. A lawyer reported it to the church along with a tape recording in January of 2018. Again, the church took no action. Finally, the story hits the press in March of 2018, and the only action the church has taken so far is to remove Joseph Bishop's books from being sold at church bookstores. And yet the church claims that it has no tolerance for abuse. Now we get to Thursday, March 22nd of 2018. This is when a critical story was reported by KUTV Channel 2. You will remember I said before what a critical fact it was that Sister X claims that Joseph Bishop took her down into a room in the basement of the MTC where she alleges this happened, that it was a room that she described as having a bed, a chair, a TV, a VCR, and VHS tapes. Well, on Thursday, a former employee at the MTC who worked there shortly after Joseph Bishop was the MTC president from 1983 to 1986 came forward and said that he worked at the MTC and as part of his working at the MTC, he would go into the basement as part of his job and that there was, in fact, a room in the basement matching exactly the description that Sister X had given of it. This is the smoking gun. This proves beyond a reasonable doubt that Sister X is telling the truth about something sexual happening between her and Joseph Bishop at the MTC because otherwise, how would she have known about this room? This is from the story. A former employee tells Two News the LDS Missionary Training Center had a room like the one described by a woman accusing a former mission president of sexual assault. The former employee who asked not to be identified, hang on a second, this speaks volumes about Mormon culture. He's a former employee at BYU and at the MTC, and he wants to come forward to corroborate this woman's story, but, but, he doesn't want his name to be used. He is scared about retribution for coming forward and telling the truth about an unpopular allegation that incriminates a former MTC president, so he doesn't want anybody to know his name. He should be proud. In any other culture, he would be proud to be coming forward to corroborate this story, but in the Mormon culture, no way. He wants to remain anonymous. Going on with the story. The former employee who asked not to be identified says the room did have a bed, TV, and VHS player. Those details were key to the woman's story, first leaked by Mormon leaks on Monday, but were contested by Joseph L. Bishop when he spoke to Brigham Young University police detectives last December. The former employee doesn't know the alleged victim, but recognized her description of the unusual room in the basement of the MTC. Now listen to how this employee describes this room. The employee said the room was in an otherwise unfinished area in a lower junction part of the building. 
The area provided access to the building's water pipes, electrical lines, and tunnels connected to other campus structures. It was only accessible after passing through more than one locked door. So how on earth is it that Sister X could possibly know about this room? The employee goes on. The employee said the room itself had no windows but was fully furnished inside. The furnishings included a single bed, similar to those used in the MTC dorms, and a TV and VHS player on a mobile cart. Now this guy wants to remain anonymous, so how do we know that he actually worked at the MTC? Well, 2 News was provided with an employment document which shows the employee worked for BYU shortly after the time Bishop served in the MTC. The story goes on, BYU students commonly work on site at the MTC. So here, the story kind of tips their hand a little bit as to the identity of this person and reveals that they were a BYU student at the time that they were working at the MTC. BYU students commonly work on site at the MTC. The former employee said they were told what the purpose of the room was. The former employee said they were told the room was, quote, used by the previous MTC president, i.e. Joseph Bishop, as a place he would take naps and sometimes pray and also watch Mormon Tabernacle Choir videos to help him relax. Now, these videotapes have come up a couple of times in descriptions of this room, and we don't know a lot about them except that they are described by both Sister X as being there as well as by this former employee. So we don't really know what was on the tapes, but I've got a feeling it was something other than the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. This employee goes on to explain why it is that he finds it shocking that this sister missionary could possibly even know about the existence of this room given its location and given the fact that you had to go through multiple doors, multiple locked doors, in order to get there. In other words, she wouldn't have gotten there unless she went with somebody else who had a key. Based on the nature of the basement alone, says the employee in the story, based on the nature of the basement alone, it would be shocking for anyone to take a sister missionary down in that basement for any reason. It was very dirty, dusty, with water dripping, running down the walls. It was a dark, dank, smelly place, the employee told Two news. The employee goes on, that's why the fully built out little room down there was so odd. Those are his words. So odd. It had nice floors, walls, ceilings, but no windows. It looked like almost any other training room in the MTC with the exception of the bed, of course. It was just really odd and totally out of place. Period. End of quote from the former employee at the MTC. Why did this former employee come forward, even though it's on condition of anonymity? Well, he answers that question, too. The former employee told Two News they felt compelled to share their experience after hearing Bishop's accuser's story. They said, quote, There is no earthly reason she should have known that room existed, and no reason anyone should have been in the room alone with her. So the former employee recognizes the room, knows that the sister missionary in the news reports he has read has accurately identified this room in the basement, knows that there is no way she should normally know about this room under normal circumstances, and therefore comes forward to the press to corroborate the existence of the room. This is the smoking gun, that Sister X is telling the truth, at least in substance, about the fact that she was taken to this room by Joseph Bishop and that something sexual happened there. Something sexually abusive, something sexually assaultive. 
happened to her there at the hands of Joseph Bishop. And why is that? Because she knows about the room, which she would never have known about otherwise. So once again, I say, this is the smoking gun. And this was the first piece of evidence that hit me on Thursday night when I read this report that slammed it into place for me, that in spite of my cautiousness, in spite of my skepticism, in spite of my reluctance to believe these allegations, as more and more information came forward, I was tending to believe Sister X's allegations more and more. And when this piece of evidence slammed into place, I knew this was the smoking gun and that she was in fact telling the truth. The second huge piece of evidence that came slamming into place for me was that the church knew she was telling the truth and was trying to cover it up. That comes in the very last paragraph of this same news story that I read on Thursday night because Eric Hawkins is the spokesperson for the LDS church. He has been running this operation from last Tuesday when the church issued its statement. He is the public face of the church. And as a spokesperson for the LDS church, he doesn't say anything except what the leaders tell him to say. But Eric Hawkins now was asked about these new details provided by this former employee at the MTC about the existence of the odd room in the basement. Here is what Eric Hawkins said. Yes, Joseph Bishop had a secondary office in the basement of the MTC. What? Are you kidding me? Eric Hawkins, you knew? about the existence of this office in the basement of the MTC that Joseph Bishop had and you never told us about it? You knew as well as I know that that was a smoking gun and that that shows that what Sister X was saying was actually true and you knew about the existence of the smoking gun and you weren't going to tell us about it. You weren't going to tell us about it unless the press found out about it through some other way and in fact the press did find out about it through an extremely unlikely and unpredictable way of a former employee coming forward and saying, yes, that room existed. And in fact, it did have a bed in it and a TV and a VHS player. So the second piece of information that came slamming into place for me on Thursday night was not only proof beyond a reasonable doubt that what Sister X was claiming was true, but also that the church was engaged in an active cover-up of what happened because the church knew about the smoking gun of the room in the basement, but they weren't going to tell anybody. And indeed, when Eric Hawkins is confronted with the report from a former employee that there was a room in the basement, Eric Hawkins is all ready not just to admit the existence of the room and that he knew about it, but also to put his own spin on it to show that really she shouldn't be taken seriously. Here's what he said. Yes, Joseph Bishop had a secondary office in the basement of the MTC. People we have interviewed who were familiar with the office report it did not contain a bed. So this is the spin that Eric Hawkins is ready to put on the story. Well, we talked to people about it and they say it didn't have a bed. So obviously she's not telling the truth because she described it as having a bed. Well, Eric Hawkins is such an idiot that he doesn't even realize what he has confessed to is the fact that he knew that the office in the basement existed. And if he knew the office existed, he knew that she was telling the truth about the office, a truth that she could not have otherwise known unless she had been taken down there by somebody with keys away from her companion, so somebody in authority with keys to the locked doors, and shown the interior of that room. He knew this, and yet he wanted to hide it from the public. And Eric Hawkins, as I say, is a lapdog. He doesn't do anything without being advised by the leaders of the church. He is governed by the apostles, and he meets with the apostles on a regular basis, and you can bet on this week he's been meeting with them every freaking day and probably every freaking hour 
for updates and to get reports on what it is that he should and shouldn't say and how he should say things. This is why I was so furious last Thursday night, because I realized with crystal clarity that the church was engaged in a massive cover-up of the sexual abuse that happened in that basement. Now, I know that the church will lie about little things. I mean, for crying out loud, I just did a three-part podcast about how the church lies regarding church growth and how they lie and try and say the church is growing phenomenally when it really isn't. But this is something different by an entire order of magnitude. This isn't a lie about church growth where nobody's getting hurt. This is a lie about somebody who was sexually abused at the hands of the MTC president, a sister missionary under his care and authority being taken down to a little room in the basement that is specially built with a bed in it and then sexually assaulted by the MTC president. Lying about this and covering this up is completely different in my mind than lying and covering up about the real statistics of the church growth. Now, it may seem to some of you that I have been unfair in my characterization of this cover-up and how it is that I look at all the strange pieces of evidence that are coming forward, and my tendency is to not believe the church's story about it, but to interpret it against the church. Well, the reason for that is because, based upon the way the church has conducted itself for the past several decades, and based upon my research, I know that the church will lie about anything and everything that casts a bad light on it. In other words, they have no credibility. If they say something is true, my first inclination is not to believe them. In fact, my first inclination is to question them and wonder if what they're telling me is true, especially in a situation like this, where their first natural reaction would be to try and cover up the sex abuse at the MTC. And the other side of that is, because we know that the church will lie about small things, we should not be surprised if we find out that the church will lie about big things. A person who lies about small things will lie about big things. And it appears that this applies to the church as well. Now, some people have said, well, what else should the church do? Shouldn't they be trying to negotiate a settlement with this woman in exchange for getting a non-disclosure agreement? Isn't that what other corporations do all the time? Well, sure, that's what corporations do all the time. The problem is, is that in this instance, the church is acting like a corporation instead of being a corporation acting like a church. What the church is doing is anything and everything it can in order to keep its good name and reputation and image unsullied by having these accusations come to light. And they are doing it at the expense of the safety and welfare of their own members. The church is more interested in its own image than it is in the welfare and safety of its members. That is not a church. That is a corporation. It may have the name of a church, but it's acting like anything but a church. Okay, we're on the home stretch now of this podcast. It has been longer than usual, but it is necessary, I think, in order to set forth all the evidence that I can, as clearly and cogently as I can, to demonstrate my conclusion that the LDS Church has been involved in a massive cover-up of this church sex scandal at the MTC. We've covered from Monday of last week, March 19th, when the audio was released by Mormon Leaks up through Thursday of last week, by the shattering announcements that there really was an odd room in the basement of the MTC behind more than one locked door that matched in every particular the description that Sister X gave of the room to which she said MTC President Joseph Bishop took her and raped her in 1984. We then covered the second astonishing revelation, which is that the LDS Church 
by its spokesperson, Eric Hawkins, admitted when confronted with this evidence that he had known all along about the existence of that room in the basement. I also noted, and actually laughed out loud when I was reading, Ron Levitt's interview to the press from last Thursday, where he recalls Sister X coming to him in 1987 when he was the bishop of her young single adult ward. And though he contradicted some of the details that she gave, he did remember the extremely important fact that when Sister X came to him in 1987, her story to him was that the MTC president, Joseph Bishop, took her down into the basement. He remembered that part, and to my mind, that is the most important fact that he could have remembered. Now we come to Friday, March 23, 2018. This week of unprecedented media attention to this scandal ends with a second statement released by the LDS Church, and now they have changed their tone. They have apparently realized that the house of cards that they constructed in order to try and cover this up and spin it in a way favorable to the church has, with every day after their first statement was released on Tuesday, crumbled more and more until it is on the point of collapse. So, let's go to the statement, the second statement, that the church released last Friday. It begins this way. We share the anger and distress church members and others feel to learn of incidents where those entrusted with sacred responsibilities violate God's commandments and harm others. So now they're basically and tacitly admitting the truth of the claims that Sister X made, the claims that they sought to poo-poo in their first statement from Tuesday and use coded language to try and smear her and make her sound like she was not credible. Now the church shares the anger and distress that church members and others feel to learn about these incidents. Well, notice what they're saying in this language. They are trying to make it sound like they are just finding out about this. The house of cards is falling, so they have to pretend they didn't know about it before. Even after two months of investigation, they want members to think that not only did they not know about it, but to not notice that they have been engaged in an ongoing attempt to cover it up. The second statement continues. Such behavior is repulsive and sinful. The church is looking into all aspects of the assertions on the recording of Joseph Bishop. This includes the work of outside legal counsel who are interviewing priesthood leaders, family members, law enforcement officials, and others with knowledge of these incidents. They still seem to want to refer to Curtin McConkie as outside legal counsel for some reason. That much is consistent between the two statements. The second statement goes on with a bombshell revelation. Now, this is perhaps the first smart thing that the church has done, which is to try and get ahead of a story that is coming out that is going to be even more damning. The second statement goes on. We are aware of one other woman who is referenced in the December recording, the one that Sister X recorded of her interview with Joseph Bishop, we are aware of one other woman who is referenced in the December recording who informed her local ecclesiastical leaders that she was sexually abused by Joseph Bishop while he served as president of the Missionary Training Center. So now they're going to say that they are aware of a second victim who claims she was sexually abused by Joseph Bishop and at the same time that he was serving as president of the MTC. Now notice that the second statement does not say when they became aware of it, but they simply say, we are aware 
of one other woman. Now, I will tell you something that after 28 years of reading police reports, I have learned that what is not said in a report is often as important as what is said. And the fact that the church in the statement is not saying when they became aware of this other woman is suggestive of the fact that if they did say when they became aware of this other woman, it would not go over well. So therefore, they'd simply say, we are aware of one other woman who was sexually abused by Joseph Bishop. Now that the house of cards is falling, the church figures they better get out in front of this one before it breaks. The statement goes on, when she reported the alleged abuse to her local leaders in 2010, that's an important year, when she reported the alleged abuse to her local leaders in 2010, they provided emotional support as well as professional counseling services. See, they can't get over trying to paint the church in the best light possible. I don't know what the emotional support was, but I expect the professional counseling services that were provided was a referral to LDS social services. But then the statement goes on to make this astonishing admission. Mr. Bishop's local ecclesiastical leaders were contacted based upon the allegation of the second sister. Mr. Bishop's local ecclesiastical leaders were contacted and they confronted him with her claims, which he denied, and local leaders did not feel they could pursue church discipline for Mr. Bishop. But remember, the first statement the church issued said that Joseph Bishop's priesthood leaders were contacted the same year of 2010 with Sister X's allegations, and they did nothing. Going back to that first statement, I will read it. This matter was brought to the attention of the church in 2010. Now, once again, they're trying to imply it was first brought to the attention of the church in 2010 when they actually knew it was first brought to the attention of the church in 1987. Nevertheless, it goes on. This matter was brought to the attention of the church in 2010 that Sister X's initial allegation, when this former church member, Sister X, who served briefly as a missionary in 1984, remember there's the mudslinging, told leaders of the Pleasant Grove, Utah, West Stake, that she had been sexually assaulted by the president of the Provo Missionary Training Center, Joseph Bishop, 25 years earlier. Remember, that's where they play the 25 years earlier card. Skipping down to the last two sentences of this paragraph, at the same time, the church referred these allegations to the local ecclesiastical leaders of Joseph Bishop. Those leaders met with Mr. Bishop, who denied the allegations. Unable to verify the allegations, they did not impose any formal church discipline on Mr. Bishop at that time. So what does that mean? This means that the same local priesthood leaders of Joseph Bishop were contacted in 2010, the same year, by not one, but two women alleging sexual misconduct by Joseph Bishop while they were at the MTC, and that on both instances, the statements say that they confronted Joseph Bishop, but because Joseph Bishop denied it, they took no disciplinary action. So imagine this, you're Joseph Bishop's priesthood leaders, and in 2010 you have two women, two separate women, coming to you with identical allegations against Joseph Bishop. And you confront Joseph Bishop with both allegations, he denies both, but really, you feel like because he denies both separate allegations, that you don't have enough to pursue disciplinary action? This is an astonishing admission by the church in this second statement. The second statement goes on. On Wednesday, the church, along with media outlets, received the unredacted police report from BYU police, which included an admission of inappropriate sexual conduct. We are committed to bringing accountability for what has occurred. 
Give me a freaking break. Now they want to say they didn't know about the unredacted police report before it was released on Wednesday. Note, they don't actually say they hadn't received it before then, but they do say that they did receive it Wednesday. You have to watch these guys every step of the way. After the first church statement on Tuesday, the media had the unredacted police report in their hands by Wednesday evening. And that was only after getting the reports that were so severely redacted as to completely block out the admission by Joseph Bishop that he had asked Sister X to show him her breasts and that she had complied. Are we really to think that the media can get the unredacted report from the BYU Police Department, note the BYU Police Department, in less than two days, but the LDS Church, who owns and operates BYU, could not lay their hands on the reports in two months of investigation? The cover-up continues. The second statement goes on. Sexual abuse cannot be tolerated in the church, but they are not only tolerating it, they are actively engaged in covering it up. And if they had had their way, they would have cut a nice check from the tithing surplus and handed it over to Sister X and her attorney in exchange for a non-disclosure agreement. Everything would have been fine. Everything would have remained secret. Nobody would have been the wiser. And Joseph Bishop's books would continue to be sold at Deseret. The statement goes on. We continue to urge our leaders to take reports of abuse very seriously. Leaders should call the church's abuse helpline, which has been established to assure that victims are cared for and that abuse reporting laws are strictly obeyed. Period. End of the second statement. So in this final coup de grace, they blame not themselves. Notice at no point do the leaders of the church, and by that I mean the top leaders, the general authorities, the apostles, at no time do they take any blame for anything. Instead, in this last sentence, they blame who? The local leaders, the bishops and stake presidents. They make this clear when they say, we continue to urge our leaders to take reports of abuse very seriously. I mean, we take them seriously as the top leaders of the church. You guys should be taking it seriously too on the lower levels. That's how they blame the local leaders. Now notice that the church started off in the first statement by blaming the victim, noting that she had served only briefly on her mission and that she is no longer a member, and that she first reported this to the church 25 years after it happened, which was itself a lie, and they knew it was a lie. Never at any time do the top church leaders take any responsibility themselves. Even though no negotiations with Sister X could have taken place and agreed to without the consent of the highest levels of leadership in the LDS Church. Remember, the LDS Church is Curtin McConkie's client. Curtin McConkie can be the face of the negotiations, but they cannot make offers and counteroffers without first obtaining the consent of their client. And they certainly cannot write any checks off church accounts without first gaining approval from their clients, which means those who are in charge of the LDS Church their client. So now a few concluding thoughts. The LDS Church is doing the same thing it always does, and which I have shown before in other podcasts. First, they try to hide the negative information. Then, should the negative information come out, they try to spin the information, and even lie if necessary, in order to try to keep from having their reputation damaged by not only the information itself, 
but also by their efforts to hide it in the first place. And finally, we all know from common experience that Sister X is not the first person Joseph Bishop has sexually assaulted or molested. He suggests that there have been other victims in his recorded interview, and we know that people like Joseph Bishop do not just start doing this type of thing in their 40s. They build up to it over time, with numerous victims in the past. And indeed, another woman has now come forward, as noted above, claiming that she was sexually abused by Joseph Bishop at the MTC. But, as sure as we know, this wasn't the first victim of Joseph Bishop. We also know this isn't the first time the LDS Church has paid hush money to victims of sexual assault at the hands of church leaders in exchange for a non-disclosure agreement ensuring that the victim will never talk about it and thereby effectively sweeping it under the rug. Or are we to believe that Sister X is the first time the church has done something like this? Finally, I want to hand it to Mormon leaks. I know there has been some controversy swirling around whether this leak was done without the consent of the victim, Sister X. That is an issue for another day. All I know is that if this recording had not been leaked, and if the church had successfully negotiated settlement of this case with Sister X for an undisclosed sum, we would never have known about the horrible actions of Joseph Bishop against sister missionaries under his care when he was president of the MTC. And additionally, in all likelihood, the second sister who has now come forward to make a sexual abuse claim against Joseph Bishop would have taken that secret to her grave. And how many others are there like her? Time will tell. And also, we would never have known the depths to which the top leaders of the LDS Church will go in order to cover up such sexual abuse of its own members. This weekend is General Conference. The Church will ask for a sustaining vote for the Quorum of the Twelve and the First Presidency. None of these men should be sustained, in my opinion, not as an apostle, not as a prophet, not as a seer, not as a revelator, not even as a human being with a modicum of decency. One, if not more, of this group of top church leaders was involved in this attempted cover-up. Curtin McConkie was not negotiating without express consent from the leaders of its client, the LDS Church. Eric Hawkins, the church spokesperson, wasn't making stuff up to say in those statements without it being first approved by top LDS leaders, and I mean apostles. Those apostles who are involved are guilty as sin. And those apostles who do not speak out and expose this heinous behavior of their fellow apostles and reject it publicly and loudly are just as guilty as far as I'm concerned. This corruption goes all the way to the top of the LDS Church and infects every apostle at its head. They are as stinking and rotten as a dead body lying in the sun. No, let me change that. They are as stinking and rotten as 15 dead bodies lying in the sun. Not only would I not trust them to teach me the gospel, I wouldn't trust them to mow my lawn. And I sure as hell wouldn't trust them to protect the welfare of my missionary daughter if she should be sexually assaulted by the president of the MTC or any other priesthood leader as far as that goes. For my first decade as a member of the church, I believed the apostles were really prophets, seers, and revelators with a special pipeline to God. But over time, 
I realized they had no special pipeline, no special communication, no special insight to share with the members. They were just repeating well-thumbed scripts over and over as an excuse to have something to say when their turn came around in general conference. But even though I realized they were not prophets, I still believed that at least they were good men. That though I wouldn't be hearing any kind of revelation at general conference, at least I would be hearing the words of good men. And I satisfied myself that it was enough to know that good men were leading the church. But with the bombshells from last week, and especially the bombshells from last Thursday, March 22, 2018, that showed not only that Sister X was telling the truth and that she knew about the basement room, but also that the church knew about it and was covering it up, I came to a harsh realization. The leaders of the church are not even good. They are something less than good. Far less. They are something approaching evil. Something approaching loathsome. Something approaching despicable. And in the end, each member of the church must decide whether they will sustain such men to lead them. My vote is no. This is Radio Free Mormon, wrestling with spiritual wickedness in high places and bringing the secret works of darkness unto light. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.